So open up your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll really start in chapter 4, but we're going to work our way into chapter 5 with the amount of time we have and just kind of see where we get to it, all right? Last week we were in chapter 1, and I, I really, really like these, this book, and it's been ministering to me, and so I hope that our time will be a ministry to you as well. We're not going to read the whole passage. We're going to be reading it as we teach through it this time, all right? So open up in chapter 4, verse 16. That's where we're going to start in our time this morning, all right? I'm reading from the New American Standard. And we're going to read verses 16 through 18, the last part of chapter 4, first of all. And so he says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing in us eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. If you remember last week we were in chapter 1 and he's beginning to unfold this whole thing about their ministry and about the ministry that we have as followers of Christ. And in this particular passage here, he has, he's doing something that is a theme of this book. In this particular book, you know, there is, it's, it's, as the introduction to the book says, in my anyway, it says it's an unusual accumulation of words expressing suffering of mind, heart, and body. The words like affliction, anguish, beaten, beatings, conflicts, danger, hunger, persecutions, punishment, sorrow, suffering, sufferings, tears, tumults, weak, Weakness, all the kind of things you want to spend your time thinking about. That's what this book is. And so, but in that, he juxtaposes all of that with comfort, comforted. And he gives hope, joy, rejoicing, all those things you find in this book. And in this particular passage, he begins to talk about this theme of hope and how in the midst of all this stuff, in the midst of of being trapped in these bodies, in the midst of circumstances that are weighing us down, that are breaking us down, he does this. And in this passage, he introduces a particular theme that he mentions a couple of times. And it is here in verse 418. And here, this particular translation is the, the contemporary English version. And it says, things that are seen don't last forever. So the things that we see right now don't last forever. The things that are broken bodies, our broken relationships, our broken governments, everything that is broken about this life because there is nothing about this life that is whole. Nothing. He says that all this that is broken is temporary. But the things that are not seen, those things are eternal. That's why we keep our minds set on those things that cannot be seen. You know... That long list of like not very fun words, beatings, sufferings, tears, pain, all of that stuff. He says all of that's going to pass. All that stuff we see, he said, so that's why we set our minds on the stuff that we can't see. We set our minds on things eternal. Now, he, he reinforces that message later on in chapter 5 in verse, in verse 5, verse 7. He, there, because if you look at that verse... <clears throat> Let's start in verse 6. He says, Therefore be of good courage, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent of the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. There is that theme again. We walk by faith, not by sight. So we walk by faith in what is to come, not by sight of what we see. What sets the tempo of our steps, 
what sets the joy of our heart, what makes us get out of bed every day is not the stuff we see. It's the stuff we don't see. It's the stuff that is still to come. And he's setting that theme up in this passage. So really, what he's saying in this passage that there are two things we can expect. So in light of everything I've just told you, Corinthians, in light of all this hardship, in light of the difficulty, in the light of the fact that he started the entire book out by saying, you need comfort. I know that. I do too. He says, this is how we survive. This is how we do what we do. He says there's two things that we can expect. One is that these afflictions, verse 417, one is that these afflictions are light afflictions. He says that they are momentary. He says they pale in comparison to what is to come. Now, when we talk about that right now, <clears throat> we are talking about something that we cannot even begin to envision what is to come. There is that song that everyone kind of knows the tune to, everyone knows at least the verses, the chorus to. I can only imagine what it's going to be like. I can't, really, I can't really tell you what it's going to be like, but I can imagine it. And even then, it's going to be far beyond my imagination. And yet, in this world, in this, <clears throat> in this life, we always suffer for something we are working towards. Athletes do it. You know, some of you are already starting up. I know that, that, you know, Natalie Livingston, she's already come back from France to start preparing for tennis. And so she's giving up on time with family. She's going to be practicing her tennis, her swing, her backswing, you know, her, she's going to be doing that an awful lot. An awful lot of repetition, a lot, an awful lot of focusing on the fundamentals so that she can, at the end of the season, say she's had a winning season. Athletes do that all the time. They suffer through all kinds of things so they can, at the end, they can say, I won. Um, business people do that all the time so at the end of the quarter they can say, I have more money than I have debt. Families do it all the time. They say, I'll work 50 weeks out of the year because I get two weeks off or I get a vacation. We always, I mean, it's, it is the way we think. It's that we endure something because we're getting something else. We endure something because we're getting something else. And he says, what you're enduring now, it is nothing compared to what is to come. There's even not even any comparison between what you're enduring now as to what is to come. And so this is the thing. In this life, what you can expect is that these afflictions, they're momentary. They'll pass. And when they've passed, what's to come is bigger than you can imagine. So there's two things to expect. The first one is, is whatever you're going through, it's going to pass. And it's of no consequence compared to what's to come. Then the second thing he says that we can, uh, we can begin to prepare and think about <clears throat> is, oh, wait a minute, but there's two, I have to back up. I missed something here. There are two options for the next life. This <clears throat> we can expect glory. We can expect that all this is going to pass. And we can expect glory only... Only if you have a saving relationship with Christ. Only if you've come to the place where you know that you cannot save yourself and that you place your faith in him. Do you want to know at what one time more lies are told in a church than any other time, and that's by preachers? 
at funerals. Because it is mighty hard to say to a grieving family that that dead, deceased person might be suffering right now even greater than they did in this life. That's mighty hard to do. And so I think there's a lot of pastors who say, and I see a pastor smiling on the front row here, I think there's a lot of pastors who try and figure out a way, how do I get around this? How do I give this family hope when there's really no hope to offer them? See, You see, because once you've taken that last breath, you enter into an afterlife where there's only two options. Only two. <clears throat> and, you, and, and those two options, one is, is that you come into the presence of Christ and then he looks at you and he looks at what the Bible says, this, this book of life, and he finds your name there. And that name being in that book or being in that role is that means that at some point in your life, you realize that you could not save yourself that you could not pay the penalty for your sin on your own by ever doing enough good stuff or ever paying for you know, enough alms or ever doing anything at all in this life. You could never do enough to pay that off. And you realize that. And you realize you needed someone else to help you. And that someone is Jesus. When you step, when you take that last breath and you step through that curtain of this afterlife and you step into the presence of God, then there he will say, what did you do with my son? What did you believe about him? Because if you believe that he died for your sins and that his death was your payment for your sins, then you've stepped into an afterlife that is eternal and that is glorious. But if you say what a person said to me this week, and that was, I'm good enough. I'll be fine. If you're sitting in that chair today saying that, I have a terrible news for you. You are not good enough. And that if you fall over out of that chair right now and step into the next life, you will step in to suffering that you've never known. If we can only imagine what heaven is like, the same thing is true for the suffering of hell. Because eternity, if you spend this part of your life saying, I'm good enough, and the next life, you'll spend it saying, I wasn't good enough. You'll spend the next life eternally separated from God. That's what hell is. And glory is being eternally with him. And so, <clears throat> when we speak that this, this, when we say that this is true, that these afflictions are light and momentary and pale in comparison to the glory to come, he's saying that to people who have trusted Christ. He's saying that to people who said, I am not good enough, there's no way for me to pay for my sins, I need Jesus. But the truth of the matter is, is that there are many who say, I'm good enough. I'm okay. I really believe that in the next life, my goodness will be recognized and will be counted as enough. And I'll get in. I'll be fine. Thank you very much. I'll be fine. Very briefly, this is the fact of the matter. If you say you're good enough, you're saying that God's holiness is pretty putrid. You're saying that if you're good enough, what you're saying is that God's standard is not so big that I can't bridge it. It's saying he's got pretty low standards and I can meet them. 
You can believe that. Scripture says different, and you'll know different when you take that last breath. You'll immediately know different. Paul says that we are compelled to persuade men to be reconciled to God. In this passage, reconciliation simply means settling of differences, of making peace or setting right what was wrong. We are called into that ministry. That's what he says we are called into. If you look at it in chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us that same ministry of reconciliation. Reconciling us to Christ simply means that we are not like him. That means that there is a huge difference between him and us. I mean, you've done that. You, you, some of you, some of us, we reconcile checkbooks. And that can be a pleasant experience. That can be a painful experience. And it's a pleasant experience when you say, I say I have $14,000 in the bank, and the bank says I have $14,000 in the bank. It's a painful, painful experience when it, you say, I've got $14,000 in the bank, and the bank says I have negative $14,000 in the bank. You see, when you say you're good enough, you're going to find that when you reconcile with God, that you think you've got money in the bank, and he's going to say, you're in arrears. Your account will not be reconciled. Because good intentions didn't do it. Good works didn't do it. The ministry of reconciliation is going to men and women that we love and not beating them down, not arguing them, but, compel- but taking the love of Christ and saying, he loves you so much that he reconciled the bank account for you so you don't have to. You don't have to be good enough. He was good enough. You don't have to die for your sins. He died. You don't have to to try and make up this account. He did that for you. And he says, because Christ reconciled us to himself, we now have that same ministry to take that message and bring others into reconciliation. We have a ministry of reconciliation. Look at verse chapter, chapter 5. <clears throat> he says, Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He was committed to the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. <clears throat> you know what an ambassador is. An ambassador goes and represents someone else. He does not have opinion of his own. He does not get to tell you what he thinks the best strategy is in your part of the world. He does not get to tell you what to do with your your treasury. He doesn't do that. What he does is he only speaks what he heard from his government. That's what Christ said about himself. He said in John, he says, I only speak what the Father says. I only do what the Father says. He was an ambassador of God. And he says, likewise, you are as well for me. And so he says, take this message of reconciliation and take it and out of the the love of Christ, share it with others. Tell them about it. Explain it to them. Love them. Love them. Go in chapter 5. 
Go to verse 14. And there he says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they should also no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. There, you know, there is this misconception among us Christians that we get a say. There is a misconception among us that says that we get to live for ourselves, that if we cut him 10%, we get the other 90 And that passage didn't talk percentages. You know, we are very vain people. And I cannot imagine any of us being okay with walking into some type of gift exchange and that we are handed a gift, you know, that came from Nima's Marcus out of their Christmas catalog. And that in return, we gave them our dollar store trinket. We would cringe if we knew that's what we were doing. And he is saying the same thing. He's saying, I gave up a life and now you owe a life. I did not live for myself, neither can you. And so what he's calling us to in giving up our life for him is this ministry of reconciliation. Is that what I did for you, you do for others. You tell them. Don't, you're not, he's not, I'm not saying you save them. I'm saying that we take that message of reconciliation. We take that message that Christ died for you so that you don't have to die. That you take that and you tell others about it. That's the ministry of reconciliation he's talking about. In that passage, he says, he says that for the love of Christ controls it. In other words, what he has done for us, his example to us, is, our, is what we are called to do. That, that love for us that he has for us, that we respond out of love, that we realize what he's done for us and we are taken by that and we re- respond to that in a likewise manner. He goes on and he says, this ministry of reconciliation in chapter, in verse 21, he says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He, he begins to say that this ministry of reconciliation is that, in a nutshell, that he made him who knew no sin, Christ who knew no sin, he became sin on our behalf. He took the payment, he took the punishment on our behalf so that we would be right before God. That's the ministry of reconciliation. That's the message of reconciliation he's talking about. In, in this passage, again, also, there's a place in here where he's, he says, in verse 11, he says, therefore, knowing that, that we are going to be before him. In verse 10, he says that we will all give an account for our works. And then in verse 11, he says, because of that, because we know we're accountable, it shapes our lives. It shapes our mission. It shapes our agenda because we're accountable. The accountability is a big deal. We're accountable for everything. It says that we will give an account for everything in our life. And again, this is only for Christians. Everything we do will be tested to see whether it has eternal value. In other words, whether it was about God or whether it was about our glory. Was it about his glory, big G? Or was it about our little tiny reputation 
in this little building with 200 of us. Because that's what some of us build in our churches. We build reputation in our little sphere. But God is about a reputation that is universal, that is global, that is him. And so in our case, when we talk about our glory, we're talking about fool's gold. It counts for nothing. It, it burns. It's momentary. It's just shiny rocks. And Paul is building a case here that he says our lives really matter. And they matter for eternity. And the reason that we get that eternal weight to our lives, that they matter for eternity, is because we have this message of reconciliation. Because we have the opportunity to tell others how to receive salvation like we've received ourselves. Now, you know, there are many who would say that in a free grace environment that we preach that there's no responsibility, no accountability, that you get away free just because God loves you. And that this message here and this book and what we're talking about today really says that we have to obey, that we are accountable. And that simply because we have grace does not mean that we get away scot-free. We are accountable. And so as we work through the, the series on Galatians, and as we've talked about grace, people have asked about that. It says, it sounds like you're making light of sin. This passage talks about that's not true. We're accountable for our sin. We're accountable for our actions. That we can't overlook sin, that we can't avoid obedience, because one day we'll give account. Saving grace is free. Sanctifying grace is what we need to deal with our sin and the obedience that's needed in this life. He, he gives us hope by saying that there is glory to come for the next life. He gives us motivation in this life by saying you're accountable for it. And he says that it's all because of Jesus. We get our joy from him in the next life. We have our peace and our comfort from chapter one in this life. And that someday, if you know Christ is your savior, you're going to step into another life where all of this, all of this, all of this, all of this won't even be remembered because of what you step into. That's hope. That's the motivation for continuing on. That's the motivation. Let's pray.